Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, Kenneth Tompkins, principal trombone in the Detroit Symphony. My name is Sebastian Vera. I'm joined as always by Nick Schwartz. How's it going, man? All right. How are you doing? Doing just fine. It's it's been it's been a week, and you know we're a little slow in putting out the podcast because we we're kind of digesting everything. But we had a, a wonderful talk with Ken Tompkins. And we talked about his feelings about everything going on right now. And he had a a lot of heartfelt things to say. And just his life growing up and his experiences in Detroit so far. And we had a really good talk. Yeah, it's interesting to hear how he got from point A to point B, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Nick, do you want to tell the nice folks about the online trombone retreat? I sure do. The online trombone retreat will happen between July 6th and 12th. And obviously, it will all be online. It's going to include... Both of us, John Sebastian Vera and myself, Nick Schwartz. Oh, you said my full name. Wow. I did. <laughs> Along with Brian Sintero, Principal Tremonis in New York City Ballet, Koichiro Yamamoto, Principal Tremonis of Seattle Symphony, Dave Binder, Second Tremonis of Detroit Symphony, and Jeff D., Principal Bass Tremone of the Pittsburgh Symphony. We're also going to have special classes on movement from Gabe Colby. We're going to have performance anxiety class with Bill Mann. It's going to be a really interesting event with live performances, master classes, a fireside chat. And the most important detail is to register online. It's completely free for everyone. We're really proud of this, and we're really happy to be able to present something to the public this year in this crazy COVID era. Precisely zero Caribbean dollars, as we established. That's true. Uh, yeah, East, all, all East Caribbean. East Caribbean. Oh, oh, my bad. My my apologies to the Western Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, all you have to do it's all free. Uh, sign up with your email address, and we'll give you all the details. Enjoy the podcast. Nineties, which is crazy for here. Is it hot up in Michigan? Guys? Today is hot. Uh, it broke here a little bit. It, I'm, I'm on the other side of the state, and it was like 95 yesterday. Today's more like 80, but it's like 4,000% humidity. Yeah. Happy <laughs> summer, guys. Yeah, there we go. So, Ken, I, I kind of, you know, I don't want to beat around the bush. Uh, <laughs> and kind of just off the bat, we're kind of in the midst of a historic time. And I'm just curious how you're feeling right now. Like, what's in your head? What's in your heart right now? Well... <laughs> so many things. I, I just, I'm heartened to see so many people out protesting at this, at the latest incident of 
black life lost to police brutality and racism as a whole. It's part of uh, the awful history of this country and really how this country was built. So all of it is disturbing, but I'm hopeful that it seems like there is a movement instead of a moment. And so if this can continue through the summer and the fall, through November, maybe we'll have some significant change in our political leadership that can carry through some significant reforms so we can live in a country that's promised in the Constitution. And like you said, I mean, we've had a lot of moments, haven't we? But it seems like we're so prone to having moments. It's just in and out and we, we forget about it a couple weeks later. But it, feel, it feels a little different this time, right? Well, it feels a little bit different. You know, I think people aren't distracted this time. Like there's, there's always a distraction, the next thing. Like I don't really understand why people can be distracted after Sandy Hook, but people were distracted. Mm. Like how were people distracted, you know, after the shootings in Charleston or Las Vegas? But people get distracted. Unfortunately, violence of all stripes is, is way too common in this country. And people want to hide behind the Second Amendment and their rights to just say and do heinous things and justify it. It's, it's, it's extremely disturbing. Well, you're from Michigan. You know what's happened in the Capitol with yeah. uh, protesters, let's say, I'll say conservative protesters that are or right-wing people storming the Capitol of Lansing, brandishing assault weapons, and the police were just letting them do it. I find that to be a very stark contrast to the way some peaceful protesters are being treated. It's a stark contrast. Yeah, abs- absolutely. 100%. And not only not only on the front line, so to speak, but from our president himself. In unfortunately, how we get our most of our news from the president is via Twitter. You know, when they were in Lansing, saying, "Oh, Governor Whitmer, these are nice people. Why don't you just strike a deal with them?" And then you turn around and you have the Black Life Matter, Black Lives Matter movement, and his response is, uh, "These thugs need to." Sh- basically sit down and shut up or else I'm going to send the military your way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's clear. There's a very clear pattern um, with him. There's black thugs like Colin Kaepernick kneeling, you know, peaceful protesters. And then there's good people, people brandishing white people, brandishing assault weapons on the Capitol and, you know, white supremacists, running over poor people in, in, yeah. in rallies. It's very clear what the pattern is. And then um, some of his supporters are you know, saying, well, he's not a politician, he's just speaking, and da 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 But it's very clear. Yeah. Lock oh, them man. back there. So, yeah, we could, <laughs> we could talk about this for a very long time. Yeah, it's, it's um, not... <laughs> I mean, um, I... look, if you want to get real, real about this, We have what we have because there is a distinct hatred of 
black people, as in Barack Obama. So Barack Obama was president. Fox News gave Donald Trump an open platform to undercut him and say ridiculous things for years prior to the last election. All the major networks gave Donald Trump unprecedented time on air just to say ridiculous untruths, lies. And, you know, you know, you, it is true. You keep on saying something enough, people will start to believe it. So, I mean, I'm, I can't say everyone that voted for Trump's a racist. I don't believe that. But if people will vote for him now, seeing what he's done for the past three years and what he's said and the patterns of behavior, I mean, I'd call you a racist. Or at least racist adjacent <laughs> or supporting yeah, yeah. a racist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we usually, we, obviously this isn't the a point of this podcast in and of itself, but we don't exist in a bubble. So we, th mm -mm. we thought it was important to go there because this is the pressing issue, the pressing issue of this moment and not just a single moment in time. I think it's all been leading up to this moment in time. Yeah. And, and some, some things, some things supersede a trombone podcast and that's yeah. kind of where we are right now. And, and I think in the arts, we have the unique perspective of often in the arts, at least you're, you're around a lot of different people, types of people. Um, and that's one of the great things about the arts that it, it can be this universal language that brings everyone together. So we often have unique perspectives of a lot of people that are different than us and not a lot of people do get to have that experience in their lives and sometimes get very, narrow views of the world but if we can back up a few years um <laughs> if you don't mind ken what are you gonna ask saverna, saverna park maryland yeah little yeah. little ken tompkins running around <laughs> so that's that's near near annapolis right yes yeah, saverna park is, is north of annapolis let's say it's 35 minutes outside of baltimore 40 minutes uh outside of washington dc Okay. Okay. Yeah. And what did your parents do? Uh, my mom was a teacher in public school. My dad worked for the state of Maryland and their their work programs, as in welfare to work program, manpower type of programs. Nice. What kind of what kind of teacher was your mom? She was a special education teacher. Oh my gosh, my mom was a special education teacher too. Every everyone that comes on this podcast like has the same job as my mom. It's weird. <laughs> Our parents. <do. laughs> Megumi's mom was also a church pianist. Like my oh mom my was. Goodness. Okay, so growing up, I imagine, did you get to be around hearing like military bands or Baltimore Symphony, that kind of thing growing up? You know, I heard a lot of different music when I was growing up, fortunately, from orchestral music. I didn't hear the Baltimore Symphony so much, but, you know, the military bands, military, you know, jazz ensembles. At that time, the Annapolis Brass Quintet was functioning, and that was like one of the first professional full-time brass quintets. So I got to hear them quite a bit just be exposed to a very high level of brass playing. And I studied with a few people in the various military groups when I was in early high school. And then eventually I started taking lessons through Peabody Prep, you know, was kind of guided towards, you know, auditioning in more of a, a classical realm. Because when I was playing, I was just playing trombone. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with the trombone. Like I couldn't say what? I wanted to play an orchestra because I hadn't heard that many orchestras, you know, and I, played in a lot of jazz bands. But, you know, I participated in all-county band, all-state band, all-blah-blah-blah all blah, blah, 
jazz. So according my according to my research, uh, oh. you seem like you were. Oh yeah. Oh, I I got questions. Deep dive. Deep yeah. dive. We have seven um, inter- interns doing deep dives on the internet. <laughs> round, round the clock. We have a we have a. As long as you don't find the video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, according to my team's research, you were a little lost in fourth grade, I would have to say. I see you starting on trumpet. <laughs> and then <laughs> I was like, what? Moving to even worse, and then even getting more lost and swerving over to euphonium in the tuba before finding the trombone. In, in All right, thanks. Seventh thanks grade. For being on, Ken. I know, for being I know. <laughs> oh, my shame. How did, how I, did you find your way? Well, you know, at that time in the public schools, you could start string instruments in the third grade. So I started on viola. Oh, so that worse. For, wow. I know. I'm so ashamed. It's euphonium of the string world. I know, I know. <laughs> and so the next year, I was like, I want to play in band. And I, I played trumpet for maybe a couple months. And then I think the band director switched me to euphonium. And I played that rest of elementary school, most of junior high. And the band director in junior high, Mr. Lewis, told me he wanted me to learn how to play trombone and gave me a trombone, like a rudimentary book. And I took it home for the summer and just started, you know, playing it. And then I just kept on playing it. And so <laughs> that was kind of, that is really what happened. And so that was eighth grade, ninth grade, went to high school and I started taking lessons. So when in school did you kind of think like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm pretty good at this. I kind of want to take my shot, go to college for this. I think it was around my junior year. Junior year, I started really thinking about it. And then um, actually just verbalizing it like i'm going to be a musician and i kept on i think i said it and not really understanding it <laughs> you know like the, the lifestyle and the dedication and i mean i was taking lessons and i enjoyed it and i was good at it you know i had my successes playing in you know high school stuff but i really didn't i didn't really get it what was it about it that made you want to do it well you know i really enjoyed the music itself just hearing the music and then being a part of the music I really enjoyed just the different sounds of the instruments and the ensembles, you know, and the camaraderie between the musicians was always so special, you know. And then when I got exposed to more orchestral music, I just thought it was so um, beautiful. And so, you know, I really enjoyed just all the different genres, you know, mainly classical and jazz. I have to tell you, when I was in high school in junior high at that time, and this is like you know, early, early to mid '80s in Baltimore, there was an organization called the Left Bank Jazz Society. And so they'd have Sunday afternoon concerts in this big ballroom in Baltimore. So they would bring in name acts like Freddie Hubbard and Dexter Gordon, Maynard Ferguson, Art Blakey. Oh, my God. Wow. Um, And so, you know, me and my little friends would bug one of our parents to drive us up there and they'd just drop us off or we'd be hanging up there for the afternoon, hear a great concert and then go back home. And so we (laughs) did this. You know, regularly. That's incredible. And, yeah. You know, I saw Terrence Blanchard play with Art Blakey when he was, I don't know, had to be teenager, late teens. Um, wow. You know, I, I mean, when I heard Freddie Hubbard play, he was, I think, less than 20 feet away from me. I don't know. That was crazy. I mean, that's, I mean, like that's something you remember forever, right? Yeah. I mean, because he was like the James Brown of the trumpet. I mean, live. <laughs> I mean, seeing him perform live, it was, it was really incredible. I have a Freddie Hubbard story. I saw him actually in the last year of his life. And I I grew up and I think I had every Freddie Hubbard album I could find. 
Yeah. And he was he was playing the Iridium my my freshman year of college at uh-huh. Juilliard. And my parents were in town, so we went down there. They didn't know much about jazz. They they appreciated it, but they didn't know much. And I said, This guy is incredible. Like, you're gonna love it. But it was the last year of his life, so it wasn't it wasn't his uh best showing, let's put let's put it that way. Yeah. But you know, this was also this was I don't know, 20 years after you're talking about. So right. <laughs> a little bit different time, but I mean, in his prime, he was just unbelievable. Yeah. I think at some point he sustained a lip injury. He did that never, that never quite healed. He used to, he, I heard he used to cut cause he had some sort of like the like callus on his lip that formed somehow. Uh-huh. And I heard he used to cut it with a razor blade before performances so that he could play because if, if he didn't, it just like his, his lips wouldn't vibrate. Oh. And so that it just kept making it worse and worse and worse. And like, right. like his, when I, I, when I saw him, his lips looked like they had been put through a paper shredder. I mean, they were just so mangled and like the scar tissue and stuff really gnarly looking. It's a lovely story, Nick. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Thanks for sharing, Nick. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so back to Ken. Um, so, you, so, Rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Let's tell a story about him not sounding good. I'm this sorry. reminds me of a time when I heard this amazing guy and he didn't sound that great. I'm sorry. In my head that story was awesome. Oh my but God. There's something there's something about being around that kind of guy though. It doesn't even matter like when when someone means that much to you. Getting to just be in their presence, it doesn't even matter what the show is like. Just being around him is is just really cool. Oh yeah, he's a legend. So Ken, so <laughs> <laughs> so Northwestern was next, right? Right, right. You know, I started fall of '85 and studied with Frank Cristofoli. You know, he was alive and teaching there. You Frank Cristofoli, just for our audience, our young players that don't know, was in the Chicago Symphony for 51 seasons. 51. 51. Seasons. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I was studying with him at the really the end of his career because he retired in '89. I ended up going there at the recommendation of the principal trombonist of the Baltimore Symphony at the time, Jim Olin, who went to Northwestern. And so, you know, you get there and I mean, of course, I heard the CSO and heard some recordings and I was like, yeah, great. The culture was. <laughs> yeah, great. OK. I, you know, I was like, yeah, you, know, you don't know okay. what you, you don't know what you don't know. So. Mm-hmm. So I went to a concert in their Mahler one. And I was like, just sitting there before the concert, just hearing people warm up, hearing Hurstleth warm up and uh, George Vosberg was in the playing second trumpet mm-hmm. at the time. And, you know, Jacobs and Klein Hamill wasn't, was retired at the time. But just hearing people warm up, I, I couldn't believe it because I never heard brass instruments sound that way. Like, I never heard people play that way. Like, it didn't occur to me you could play that way. So it was like a total <laughs> kind of shift in my thinking. And then after hearing that, I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to do that. Like, I have to play that well. I was, you know, when I was there, I was there frequently going to Chicago Symphony concerts. This was towards that. You said he, uh, Chris Foley retired in 89. Right. So you you were one of his last students then, right? I mean, towards the end, at least. Yeah, 85 to 89. Wow. But he I mean, studied. He, he taught after that, after he retired from the. Oh, OK. I didn't realize he that. Did. Yeah, he didn't retire from Northwestern. Mm hmm. But anyhow, regardless of that, how was how was that setting with him? I mean, because you know he was a trombone factory in and of himself, just churning out such amazing talent from Northwestern. How was it working with him? He was great. I mean, he had a very encouraging manner, as in he was always pointing out what you were doing well, 
despite 85% of what you may think was terrible. <laughs> he was like, oh, but look at what you did. Look at how you improved. You know, because I was always very hard on myself. And frequently, I think my lessons, I don't think I played well, but he was always very encouraging and extremely generous with his time. I mean, just extremely generous, teaching people out of town. You know, one summer I was there working on campus and gave me lessons for free all summer. I mean, he was just very, wow. a very generous guy. I don't know how he, how he handled all of that between his, his family life and work at the CSO and the students. I mean, he was, right. I think he was running all the time. If you had to point to one thing when you think about what you learned from him that may still stick with you today, what, what would it be? A few things, but one of the biggest things is everything is, is based on the long tone. Okay. So the long tones is the slice of you know, your loaf of bread. Every note is a slice of that, not a slice of bread. Mm -hmm. And so he would frequently, you know, like you're, you're working on an excerpt and he would just really break it down to its base elements of the long tone. So, you know, you're working on the prelude to act three of Lohengrin. He would make you just play the D natural sustained, this long tone whole note. Then you might play just a few notes articulating it. Then a triplet on just on the D because you're just really getting into the airflow and enjoying the air movement without impeding it or getting anything else in the way. You know, then you play the arpeggio and then, you know, maybe a, a few bars or you might work on this excerpt just on one note, you know, single note practicing just to work mm. on the airflow. You know, the, the, the lesson really is no matter what your slide is doing, like if you have to go up, down, wherever, your air is always beautiful. So that is just one of the fundamental things I learned from him. And I think about it all the time and try to apply it to my own playing because I want it to sound like it's easy and simple and beautiful. Your I, air is always beautiful. I love that. Yeah, yeah that's if you interesting. Can, if you can do those things, no matter what the style, you know, you're you're going to sound pretty good. Yeah, we do enough to complicate things. It's nice to have centering thoughts like that. Just everything based on a long tone, everything beautiful. You should feel relaxed and everything. I mean, that's that's awesome. Did you have any time with Arnold Jacobs when you were there as well? I took one lesson with Arnold Jacobs when I was in school. Got my hundred bucks together, took the train <laughs> down there. And I can honestly tell you, I don't remember a thing about it besides playing really awful. I think I could barely squeak oh, out. No. I was so I was so nervous. I was like, Arnold Jacobs. <laughs> Go, going to see the guru. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're going you to climb the mountain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like that because you, know, you used to teach in this building and it had a, an elevator that had a, a human operator. And so you got in there and this guy just push it, pulling these levers. That was quite an experience. But, I mean, I think, you know, when I got in the orchestra here, I went back and had one lesson with him. And that was really towards the end of his life. That, that was beneficial. He was great. So we went from Baltimore to Chicago and now Philly for grad school, right? Yeah, I, was, I went to Temple University to study with Eric Carlson. Eric Carlson is the second trombonist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I initially met him when he played in the Baltimore Symphony. And always thought very highly of his playing. You know, he was a Kleinhammer student. So it was great to get that perspective. And it's very, um, you know, very fundamental based type of playing, but, but different. You know, because Christopher Foley was very 
you know, you did a lot of cantabile playing, at least I did when I studied with them, because I think he was just trying to get me not to be so tight. And just to loosen you up, he would sing a lot with you. So the song was always important. So with Eric, we worked a lot on fundamentals and, all right, play your scale, two octaves, even. <laughs> Don't, do you hear that your sound's changing on that note? It's like on these slurs. I mean, really, some fundamental things. What kind of student were you? Were you kind of were you living in the practice room? Were you pretty much a self starter, or did you you know work hard, play hard? I spent a lot of time I mean, practicing. Kind of... I I practiced a lot. I mean, when I was in undergrad, I was like either in the dorm or the library listening to music or practicing. So I spent oh. a lot of time practicing. I can't say it was good practicing. I spent a lot of time <laughs> practicing there, you know, because I really so into it and wanted to succeed and play in an orchestra. And at that time, I don't know if it's like this now. But at that time, there were guys playing in the civic orchestra who were, they're a bit older, maybe, I don't know, some of them are mid-20s. And they were hanging out in Chicago and taking auditions and practicing at the facilities in Northwestern, and you had to hear them play. I really got the sense of the work ethic that was needed to succeed. And you saw people doing it. So that was invaluable. You know, plus it was, you know, we competed for spots in the top groups like three times a year. And like you're always competing, which was really another invaluable lesson, just making yourself get out there. Mm-hmm. Just kind of where I know we're bounce, bouncing back and forth between time periods here, but you wrapped up your time at Temple. What came next? What did, did you freelance anywhere? Did you, I know, I know you didn't go straight to Detroit, but did how you did take it your work? talents to South Beach? <laughs> oh, that's right. You went to New World from there, right? No, not exactly. I, um, <laughs> Oh, I like that. Take your talents. <laughs> I, I actually I, I stole that joke from Ken earlier. Okay, I know uh, I'm not. I, gonna, it took me a minute. I'm slow. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to tell you the reference, but I was I was finished graduate school. You know, really working like just little jobs, non musical jobs. And the Florida Orchestra in Tampa had an opening just for the season, and I got that. So I went down oh. there and played. You know, for the rest of the season, it was a great experience. Really, my well, it was my first professional orchestral experience. Was this your? Was this one of your first auditions? Had you taken a lot of auditions before that? I had taken some, but not a lot. So you know, I did that and finished up there. You know, I knew things were going to end there, and I saw an ad in the International Musician for the Fellowship Program for the Detroit Symphony. And so you know, I came up here and auditioned for that. And so I got that fellowship, and I came up here and I did the fellowship. It was for two years. And so then I was exposed to the Detroit Symphony and, you know, the Great Hall and wonderful musicians and studied with people in the orchestra. And it was at times an overwhelming experience because I wanted to play at that level that I was hearing and I wasn't quite playing at that level. So, you know, it's constantly challenging myself. In the, in the fellowship, was, was it like it is now? Like, were you getting to play with the orchestra as well? Yes, play with the orchestra. Oh man, what an experience. Yeah, it was great. It was great two years. After that, I was hanging around Detroit for a few months and I got a call to do a tour with New World. And that was in like 94 or so. That January, I moved down there and I played there for about a year and a half. And then uh, I got a job in playing in Buffalo. I played second trombone in Buffalo. Who was in the section with you in New World? It was Brian Deal. So I went to Northwestern with Brian mm-hmm. and Darren Milling. Mm-hmm. And former second trombone player. Oh, uh, former second trombone player, player in Rochester. <laughs> I know um, Mark Salatino. Okay, yeah, Mark Salatino. Yeah, that name. Um, <laughs> Ed, Ed Defus was playing tuba. 
you, the, I'm just curious. I, I like to hear lineage and stuff. So then you go to up to Buffalo. So a lot of trombone players have gone through Buffalo. It's that it seems like that orchestra in San Antonio is just like a, a trombone factory. Um, right. Yeah. So so who was who was up there in, in Buffalo with you? Carl Mazio was playing principal. Mm-hmm. Don Harry was playing tuba. The bass trombone was vacant at that time, and they hired someone who's a Chinese gentleman, and he never showed up. <laughs> I don't know. That was like one of these weird Usually things. Helps. Like he never came. <laughs> he went to audition, but for whatever reasons, he never started. And I was just there for the year, so it was subs for the year on bass trombone. So how was that experience being in Buffalo? I mean, you grew up in a cold place, and then went to a colder place, and then you went to an even colder place. <laughs> you know what? I liked Buffalo a lot. I mean, I just a lot of history there. A lot of history. Uh, it was just a relaxed atmosphere. I I liked the town. I I really did like it tremendously. And the people were very nice in the orchestra, and the orchestra sounded good. It did snow every day. The year I was there mm-hmm. in the winter, it snowed a little bit every day, which freaked me out. Because I never, <laughs> you know, even in Evanston, north of Chicago, it didn't snow every day. <laughs> it snowed a little bit every day. The lake effect is real. Yeah. Like an extra 30 minutes to warm up every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was great. It was great. That year, Jeff Biancolana was playing principal mm. trumpet. He's now in San Francisco. And I, I knew Jeff from New World. So we were playing there together. It was, I mean, it was fun. It was, I had a great time. I freelanced a little bit out in San Francisco for four years. And I knew, I knew Jeff out there a little bit. So, okay, you're in, you're in Buffalo. And then next step, Detroit? Yeah. Yeah, walk us, walk us through the preparation for this audition and what the actual audition was like and, and your feelings throughout the whole experience. Well... I have to kind of back up because when I was in New World, I was taking auditions and getting far in some big auditions and not quite closing it. I get these little comments here and there, your intonation or your articulation, da 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 da. And, you know, I was like, all right. And I was already recording myself frequently, but I was like, okay, well, let's see what this is all about. And so I just would turn my tape recorder on and just leave it on and record everything and listen to a lot of it, especially the things that were pointed out to me were, that were problems because I needed to hear it and I wasn't hearing it. So that proved to be invaluable. And I mean, I taped myself incessantly when I was in New World, did it all the time. And I had like an audition preparation routine. I would have little five by seven note cards and I write the excerpts on them and I pick them randomly and do rounds, tape record it, listen to it. I do that several times a day. Then, you know, I listen to it, score them, and then the worst ones, I'd really practice the hell out of them. So I would do that day after Mm. day after day after day. And it paid off because after a while, you know, it doesn't matter what the order is. I mean, you're just kind of ready to do it. That's kind of what accelerated my playing as far as auditioning was concerned. I mean, there still was, you know, the mental side of it. So you wouldn't psych yourself out or get too nervous about it. Did you did you get nervous? Yeah. Is that something you, got, you had to battle? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I took a lot of auditions. I mean, I don't know, over 30. I, I, I couldn't even tell you how many I, I took. It was over 30 before I got in Detroit. It was, it was, I don't know. It was a lot. But, you know, at that time, there were a lot of auditions. Some had auditions twice. I think North Carolina had something twice. Pittsburgh had several auditions so it was just a good time to be auditioning you know i i suffer with nerves in auditions and i mean i can honestly say that despite being physically prepared a lot of times i wasn't mentally prepared 
to mm-hmm. encounter the audition. You know, many times I just didn't play that well. You know, rightfully so, I was not advanced. So mentally prepared, how, how, how do you feel that you weren't mentally prepared and how, how did you become more mentally strong? Well, not being mentally prepared is losing focus, being distracted, just letting your mind race like not having the ability to slow things down. If you can slow things down and just focus on the music and play, and it sounds simple, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, of course. You're, you're going nope. to gonna, gonna do well if you know, you're ready to go. You know, I read several books with psycho-cybernetics and mm-hmm. deep performance and mm-hmm. inner game, Barry Green stuff. I mean, I read a lot of stuff concerning that and spent some time you know, doing visualization, which helped tremendously. Mm, yeah. A, a lot. That helps tremendously. And doing different exercises that would ena- enable me to calm down, like deep breathing and then focusing on warming part of your body. That routine is in the Psycho-Cybernetics book. And I found that to be very, very effective as a way of just settling yourself. Is that still something that you do now, working on, on that mental aspect before performances? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, to me, like when you practice, when you're practicing, you're doing your daily routine, right? I do my daily routine as kind of a confirmation, affirmation, like, okay, this is the way it's supposed to go. This is what it's supposed to sound like. If it doesn't sound like that, I have something to work on later on. And mentally, you know, I'm preparing myself for whatever moment. I have to play a solo. So I might do some visualizations on we're playing Bolero Mahler 3. I'm sitting there and I'm about to play. I'm looking at the conductor and he's looking at me, he or she. Well, you look, you look at the conductor? Yeah, I, well, you know, I want to come in kind of on time. But, um, wow. but I have that type of visualization. So my focus is very limited. So what I'm mm. you know, seeing on the page, I'm looking at the conductor, I'm hearing the orchestra in my head. You know, it can be, it can be very, very powerful. And no, like you're hearing yourself in your head play well, which for some people can be a big struggle because sometimes people do visualizations and they hear themselves playing poorly. So mm-hmm. <laughs> they're making a mistake. So, you know, you just that's to, the battle we do, right? That's, that's, that's the battle. Like, Oh, Oh, I can't miss this note. I can't miss this note. Then you miss the note. If you are about to take the test or a test, there's two people taking the same test. One, they're both equally prepared. One person is full of doubt and the other person is confident. You know, the person that's full of doubt is going to second guess the, their answers and make mistakes. Well, the person mm-hmm. that's confident is just going to take the test and try to do the best they can and leave it at that. So, you know, I think about those type of things a lot. Like you've prepared. You may have overprepared. You know, you've done the visualization. You've done all the types of study. Like you know the music cold. All you need to do is sit there and let the music go and play. Don't get in the way as in the form of doubting or what thinking what other people are going to think or being self-conscious. Just play the music. It sounds like you've through the process of, I don't know, you said 30 auditions or more. You're now at the Detroit Symphony audition. What about this audition do you feel went differently that enabled you to get through that over that last hurdle, you know, getting not just finalists, but winner? Well, that visualization, all that type of stuff in the, the mental preparation techniques that all most of that started when I was in Detroit. And, you know, I can't tell you how much I practiced on that stage. Mm. I practiced on that stage. 
a lot. So I was very comfortable in that environment. You know, like you do your preliminary round and then you come back to the second round and you're like, oh, I might have a shot at this. Then you're like in the finals. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. This is, you know, then I'm sort thinking, okay, this is mine. Like I'm, I was actively thinking I'm going to get this one where normally I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't think that, but I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be mine. And I'm, don't get the wrong impression. I didn't play perfectly. I played very well. Hmm. So you got to think that way though, right? Like if no one else is going to believe in you, who is right? Yeah. So in the finals, but, you got to be, you know, most of the time I, I would focus on performing the music well, not on mm-hmm. the result. You know, because mm-hmm. if you focus on the results, you're putting another type of pressure on yourself. And I wasn't, of course. I, I mean, in that instance, I wasn't putting pressure on myself like I have to win it. I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to get this one. It was more of a feeling. Mm. I just kind of went with it. So Nimi Yarvi, or the personal manager, comes in and says, you are the next principal tremose of the Detroit Symphony. Yeah, that was How'd awesome. That feel? I mean, like I knew him. I knew the personal manager. I mean, he's still in the orchestra, not his personal manager, but he's still here. So, wow. you know, it's like one of those kind of weird, magical moments. And like we got up and hugged and went out and saw the committee. And it was great. It was great. Yeah. So w- what year was this again? 97. 1997. Yeah. If you would have done the research like I did. Well, I have people doing the research for me, Sebastian. Uh, have it in my notes right here. <laughs> so 19, <laughs> 1997. Wow. So you've been in the orchestra 23 years. I mean, how has the orchestra changed? How has it, how has it stayed the same? I know. I mean, when I was, when I was growing up, I used to come to the Detroit symphony all the time uh-huh. and hearing you guys made me want to play the trombone. I gotta be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I was growing up, you guys were not in the hall you're in because it was being renovated. Oh, so I know that's yeah. I know that's part of your history as an orchestra. But in, and now, in, in my opinion, you're in one of the great halls of the country. It's right. a spectacular hall, and you're very lucky to to be in a hall like that because not every orchestra, not every great orchestra, gets a great hall. Right? Um, how has it been being in one place for 23 years and seeing the evolution of an orchestra or the continuing evolution being part of that? Well, you know, we've had our difficult moments here in Detroit mm-hmm. with our, you know, the ups and downs of the economy, local and, yeah. and national economy and the orchestra. It's at this point, it's a smaller ensemble than when I joined by about, I don't know, 10 or so people. Cause I think at the peak we're in 96. Mm-hmm. Now we're 85 or 86. I think it's a different sounding orchestra really to my mind, because of the personnel that's changed. Concertmasters change. Almost all the principals have changed since I've been in the orchestra. It's had a tremendous, tremendous effect on the sound of the orchestra. Like now, it's a much more lean sound. I mean, it used to be very pillowy, but now it's, you know, to my ear, a leaner, brighter, I can't say more aggressive, but maybe more agile type of Hmm. playing. I mean, a lot of the orchestra has turned over in, you know, my 23 years here, of course. Right. You know, when I started, you know, I was 29. There's only a few younger people. Most people, most of the people were a good 10, 15, 20 years older than me at that time. So, you know, things have just turned over. You were the young hotshot. And now you're the, uh, <laughs> I'm the old guy, the grizzled vet. <laughs> I'm, I'm the old <laughs> gnarly guy. <laughs> I say, this is the way it used to be. Put your stands away. We don't sit that way. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's different. It's a lot, you know, and the culture has changed. I mean, you know, we had people in the orchestra that have been there for 30 plus years and through strikes and labor difficulties before, you know, had fought to get the orchestra up to, you know, 52 weeks, 96 players with the thought of it getting even bigger. And it didn't. I mean, as you can imagine, some people were, even when I joined, voicing frustration and bitterness that, well, we used to do this. We don't do this anymore. How can we undo mm. that? It used to be like this. It's not like that. But I've come to see that, you know, if you're not able to adapt and change, you're going to be extremely unhappy. Period. <laughs> I mean, it's been a lesson for me just to learn how to deal with change the best you can. You know, some of the change is self-inflicted, but there's a lot of change that happens in life that you have no control over. And you just have to learn how to adapt with it as best as you can. Seems like the orchestras, like most orchestras, has been a true reflection of the city as far as what it's gone through. You know, it's had had certain bumps in the road and challenges. And now it's, you know, having this Detroit personally, and I think it's the same for Nick. It's one of our favorite cities. If people listening have never been, it's truly such a unique place and so dynamic and so much just the people is my favorite part. And of course, you have interesting things like there's a huge Middle Eastern population. So Mm -hmm. the food there is incredible. You know, you have the history of Motown. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just such a fascinating place. Like, what's it been like since, you know, you've been there touching on three decades now, just watching the evolution of the city? Um, It's been incredible. Especially the past 10 years, the revitalization of the downtown Midtown area where the hall is. And it's just, it's really incredible. It's great. And I have to agree with you. I think it's an incredible city. It's really frustrating to read articles or see pictures of the cities that emphasize like ruined porn. Talk about some ridiculous stuff that doesn't really represent the heart of the city or the people. Full of beautiful people, beautiful families hardworking people, you know, just incredible. I mean, it really is, not to be corny, but it is really, truly an honor to be able to perform in this space, in this city um, that's gone through so much, you know. I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't beautiful. So what we're doing is beautiful and can, you know, be inspirational to people. But it's, it's, I think it's a great place. It really is America. Like, there's a bit of everything here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Growing up, I grew up outside of Detroit, and I'd come into town for, you know, go to a baseball game, or I'd go to hockey game, um, obviously not basketball. Well, is, are they going to are they going to move the basketball team downtown? They're next door now. Are they yeah, downtown? They're, yeah, they're right next door. Oh, that's right. They got out of the palace now. now they're yeah, downtown. the palace is gone. Uh, they yeah. play in the same arena that the hockey team plays in. Yeah, because Joe Lewis is gone now, too. Joe Lewis is gone. Oh, uh, I, I used to go to Joe Lewis all the time in Greektown and all those places and come see the symphony, have lessons, all sorts of stuff coming yeah. downtown. My, my family moved away from the D- Detroit area when I was in college, and so I didn't have any family over there anymore, and I didn't go for, I don't know, probably about 10 years. Then my wife had a gig at the at the Detroit Institute of Art in mm-hmm. the, uh, Diego Rivera room with incredible museum if, if no one's been no one's well the detroit Institute of art is an incredible museum but if no one's been specifically to see the diego rivera room it's the largest diego rivera mural in the entire world and it was yeah. intended for the rockefeller center in new york but it has communist undertones so they <laughs> at, they said no we don't want to hear and detroit said we'll take it <laughs> and it's, it's just gorgeous it's incredible so anyhow she had a gig there and i tagged along and i i lived downtown for Oh, just one summer after college 
And we lived in this real sketchy house and <laughs> with some friends from high school. Yeah. And But I, I fell in love with the neighborhood, even though it was kind of like a little rough and tumble. Uh-huh. But I came back and we went to that neighborhood. I mean, there's like a like a hipster coffee shop on the st- on the right, corner right. and a and like a, a bike store right. and like like a place to buy art supplies. I was like, I'm am I in the same neighborhood? What's right. going on here? <laughs> I mean, in all in the course of ten years, unbelievable transformation of the same neighborhood you're talking about. Right. I, I wasn't ter- I wasn't terribly far from the symphony hall where I was living. It, it's been incredible to see that. I mean, obviously not through the daily lens that you've seen it through, but seeing it from when I was like. 12 years old up until uh, an adult, mm-hmm. it's just been a massive transformation. And that's amazing. I, I hope it continues on that trajectory as it looks like it's going to, because it only serves to help help the people. And it seems like just like c- other cities in the Midwest that have been knocked down the, the quote unquote rust belt, the thing that brings it back is the arts, P- people coming in and doing creative things, opening uh, creative restaurants, opening galleries, spaces that they, they couldn't open in a place like New York or Chicago or LA because it's too expensive. They can right. go to a place like Detroit or or Buffalo or Pittsburgh right. and do the same thing for much less much less money and revitalize the city. Right. And I think that it, it seems like that is is what's happening in Detroit in a major way, and it's awesome. It's awesome. It's great. It's great. Yeah. All those things are happening. It's it's incredible. I mean, it's it's a thriving art community and. You know, the restaurant scene was bustling. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, we'll see. Isn't it crazy we haven't even thought about the that COVID-19 thing at all in this talk? Yeah. <laughs> but I I have to say I have to say I I had the profound privilege of getting to sub for you a couple times in the Detroit Symphony and I have to say one of the nicest facilities I've ever gotten to to work in besides the hall being incredible. My favorite part is, and I think a lot of people may not know this. You guys have something that you might see in a lot of, you know, bigger companies, but you see it with an orchestra. You guys have nap rooms. Oh yeah. There are a few quiet, yeah. Quiet rooms. People take naps in. Oh, <laughs> that was so cool. That you is know, such I, a luxury. It, <laughs> I don't even think about it because I never use them, but that those are. Oh those, man, those I've been using it all the time. Those are terrific. Man. What about, do you guys have practice rooms? Yeah, there's practice rooms scattered. Well, there's an education wing that was built on in the early 2000s. Because, you know, it used to be initially it was just orchestra hall was just the auditorium. And so in the early 2000s, it expanded to become the Max M. Fisher mm-hmm. Music Center expanded lobby an atrium and a education wing so beautiful, beautiful yeah right right now there's really three performance spaces in the whole complex so which is great wow and there's practice rooms yeah i mean it's it might sound crazy to a younger listener but like you go around the country to different halls even having an orchestra lounge or practice rooms is not a given i've played in some big, big orchestras that don't have a single practice room in the whole building. In New York, they, they essentially don't exist in Lincoln Center. There's maybe four practice rooms in all of Lincoln Center between the three three buildings. I mean, it's crazy. These are some of the biggest or- orchestras in the world, and there's there's nowhere to practice. You go, you go into a hallway and practice in a stairwell, or you do something like that. That's what college is for. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Anyone who's listening who's in college, do not take practice rooms for granted. They don't exist everywhere. <laughs> it's a very, very comfortable facility. It really is very nice. It's done a great job with that expansion. Yeah. So I just have one last question for you. Is, is there a, I mean, gosh, this is probably a tough question, but I mean, over your time with the symphony, is there, there one performance or a specific memory that was the most profound to you that still sticks out in your memory? There's a, there's a couple of things, but um, we were doing this tour with Neme Yarvi, and for whatever reason, you know, this tour schedule got messed up, and we were running late. And I think all, all we had time to do was drop off things at the hotel, then get right to the hall, and then perform. We were playing Shostakovich 11 on that that day, and a real uplifter, a real uplifter. <laughs> but you know, Neme Yarvi was, you know born in Estonia, was familiar with Soviet occupation. He knew Shostakovich. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, Whoa. he had a certain affinity for that music, and I think it it really meant something to him on a deep personal level. So whenever we performed Shostakovich with him, I thought that was just a fantastic experience. And that day when we performed it, I, I don't think I ever forget it because it was so, it was very moving and just heartfelt music. And it's funny, no one got to eat, except for like, you know, crackers and peanut butter. Uh, that's the type of thing but it was like one of those moments that was one of those moments the other one which is is funnier there's this conductor his name is leaf Seegerstem. you don't know if you've ever worked with leafs does he look like brahms yes yeah i know you're talking about <laughs> he, so there was a time in the early 2000s he was conducting here in detroit quite a bit and in addition to being a conductor he's also a composer so he wrote this piece called April, which is April. And it was, the piece had two pianos, and one of the pianos was set up right in front of the trombone section. The other one was on the far side of the stage. And so in the music, at one point, it says scream orgasmically. <laughs> that's what it says. And so <laughs> that's what it says. And so we're sitting there during the, I, I, you know, I didn't do it, and I'll tell you why. So during the performance, you know, he's conducting and, you know, the music's going on. And he gets off the podium. The music's continuing. He walks back to the piano that's right in front of us. And at that point, he starts banging on the piano and screaming his head off. You know, when it seems, says scream or orgasmically. That, I, I was laughing too hard to scream. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. There's actually a, a video of him conducting, I don't know what orchestra, and he's conducting Shahrazad. Shahrazad, yeah. And he's screaming while he's conducting, right. like not mad, but ah, yeah, like just <laughs> like pirates. Yeah, like yeah. Pi- exactly. Yeah, like pirates. Yeah. So it sounds like he's quite a character. Oh yeah, he was wow. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He, was he looks like a character. He was something else. I heard he was a, a experience for all senses too. Let's put it that way. Oh man, people were really. <laughs> uh, he should have used deodorant. <laughs> he really oh should've. wow that's what i've heard he should have used <laughs> you know the, like i was in the back of the stage and the funk was wafting towards <laughs> towards the rear of the stage it was it was not good and this Poor same guy violins that was terrible this guy he came back and did a, a radovara violin concerto oh I, i've played that yeah okay I've, I've yeah yeah and so for whatever reason there was a part i was messing up and so I walk off stage and he says to me, um, he says, so are you going to manage to play this correctly? (laughs) 
and Ooh. I was like, and I was like, uh, well, um, I'm really trying. And I mean, all I saw when I looked up was him. It looked like a bunch of ones. Like I couldn't tell what was what. Um, <laughs> and so, oh man. <laughs> so the next the next day, I think before the performance or maybe at intermission, he calls me up to his office. And so I go up to the office, and he's sitting at the desk with no pants on. As you do. No pants on. He has, <laughs> he has his tux, tux shirt on and no pants. And I was like, what kind of hell am I existing in? <laughs> well, I've heard from other people that they've been called into his office and he's been completely nude. So I think you're pretty lucky on Whoa. this one. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. And, not, and I think it was just he was hot and took off everything. I don't think it was any sort of game he was playing. He just, Oh, he I agree. Just exists, I agree. Existing on a different plane. You yes. Know? Completely. Yeah. Completely. Man, you, you'd, love to put a <laughs> you'd love to be able to put a quarter in a machine and get inside a head like that and figure out what's going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 He was, he was a wow. wild one. talk with ken today i thought what do you think sebastian yeah i mean we love ken he, he's come to the retreat in, in our early years and we were talking about it you know ken, ken is a very thoughtful person you see it when you talk to him when when you ask him a question he's not afraid to to pause and really think about what he's going to say you know what what he says is very important to him you were kind of comparing it to his trombone playing. You know, it's, it's yeah. everything he does is purposeful, is thoughtful, is well thought out. And he's a very interesting person that I think, you know, not as many people may know. Yeah. I, you know, having conversations with him, I, I had, I, had, I guess I was more familiar with his playing before I knew the person because I, I, like I said in the podcast, I, I grew up outside Detroit. I grew up with the Detroit symphony in my ear and his sound in my ear, honestly, but kind of putting the man to the sound, I suppose, when he came to the retreat and I got to know him better over some beers and such, you know, I, I do the, I find this a lot with a lot of players is that your personality kind of matches your playing. And like you said, he's, he's a quite purposeful and he kind of thinks through his answers. And I, I find that with his playing, I remember his recital is 2015 when he was here and it was just like, it's like, well, that's how that goes. Super, super impressive recital, very musical, beautiful, soulful playing and just everything kind of in its right place. And that's kind of how he is as a person, just very, yeah, you put it best. <laughs> and and while we're on it, um, since since I forgot to mention in the intro, speaking of his playing, he has a CD called Sonatas, Songs, and Spirituals. It is awesome. It is beautiful. It came out very recently, I think. Like two years ago, maybe. maybe a year. Two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Won the American Prize for Instrumental Performance. It's, it's just great. You can find it on CD Baby. So I, I very much recommend checking that out. He has modern pieces on it and classic pieces. And it's just, it's a really nice variety. It's very creative and just beautiful playing and really well recorded. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not surprised at all. Um, another cool thing we didn't get a chance to talk to, I think a lot of these people that we're going to have, as long as this podcast goes on, we're going to have them back on because there's always so much more you can get into. But one really cool thing that the Detroit Symphony does kind of earlier than pretty much any American orchestra is their, their digital concert hall that they have is... I think free for subscribers. 
Um, but it's it's just an amazing production value, and you can hear almost any of their concerts. And they're actually free right now during the pandemic. Yeah, and actually, he did a he did a concerto with them. Probably it was a year or so ago, and that I know that was on the digital con- concert hall that they have, or I don't know what the series is called, but you can go through their archives and find that. And I mean, knocked it out of the park. Sound sound great. And you know, as far as you know, the the stuff we touched on at the beginning. You know, all I'll say is that the trombone retreat, Nick and I, I mean, well, I won't speak for you, but I I know how you feel is like, we do believe that Black Lives Matter, just to say that from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this has been a really challenging time. It's it's been a time to kind of wake up and, you know, I was interviewed on my, my brother's podcast. My brother has this really cool podcast in England, actually, and I was saying how, you know, no one no one thinks they're racist, you know? You don't have to be a racist to to be unaware. And basically how I've looked at all of this is we can all do better. There there's always something you can learn. There's always more you can do. It, even if it's just understanding. You know, it's not about just posting every day on Facebook. There's actionable things. There's we can vote. You can educate yourself. There's so many resources to educate yourself. You can donate you can just have that conversation with that that racist uncle you've always been afraid to like talk to during Thanksgiving. And you know, and I know this is a very challenging topic right now and I know a lot of people have a lot of feelings, but I, you know, I just want to be kind of clear how I feel and you know, the the biggest thing for me is just like when people say all lives matter, you're really missing the whole point of the argument. You're not really listening cuz that's not yeah. really They've never said that all lives don't matter. I think I think within the statement Black Lives Matter, there is the understanding that all lives matter, but it doesn't happen like like there's the, the that you'll see this online a lot. All lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter because th- that's inherently true. If if there is part of society, a group of people in society that are shoved down. How is it that all lives can matter? You know, and they're not it, Michael, Michael Che. I mean, uh, so, so much of great political commentary comes through com- comedy. And he had a great skit about that, it, that he found, finds it ridiculous that people get offended by the statement, black lives matter. He says, we're not saying we don't, that we matter more. We're just saying Black, we matter. <laughs> and it's a great skit. You can look it up. It's, you know, it's comedy is a great relief in times, in troubled times. And that kind of spoke to me because that's exactly what I find this movement to be about is no one is saying we matter more. Well, Black, black Lives Matter is not saying we matter more. They just want the recognition that they, at this point, aren't equal in our society. Yeah, and and if your first instinct is to be like, well, I've never done anything racist, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. It's un- it's it's a sense of understanding. It's a sense of understanding our history, and there's a lot that you never learn in school uh, about just oppression and, and and you know if you've never just do a Google search if you if you never read about Jim Crow if you've never read about redlining if you've uh, there's there's so many things that. Just spend a few minutes before you talk and just have conversations. And like we've talked about before in this podcast, we're incredibly polarized right now. And it's so hard for people that disagree with each other to talk to each other. And like we were saying in the previous podcast, empathy is so important. 
even if you don't completely understand something, li- listen to someone. If someone's really passionate about something, you don't know their experience. Listen before you decide that there's nothing you can do. And that's all we're saying. And one more thing I wanted to touch on, and I was talking about this with the, the trombone retreat crew yesterday via WhatsApp. There's been this whole kind of uh, to-do on this tuba euphonium marketplace where the whole purpose of the page is to to buy and sell equipment, right? Seems simple enough. And, you know, we as artists, we, we as musicians, we as low brass players who are, you know, we're part of that community. It, we're supposed to be the beacon of equality and hope and a safe place for anyone to just be themselves because music is the international and universal language that's supposed to bring everyone together from all walks of life. And the moderator, who's a tuba player for this for this marketplace, said over time there's been some quasi or full out racist remarks, and he's going to go through. And if he said if you're going to come out and say all lives matter, you're going to come out and say something even vaguely racist, you're going to be removed from the group. Seems simple, right? Oh my god, this caused such an uproar, and so many people out of themselves as either openly racist people or people who through their actions were standing by racist behavior. And to me, that's not only unbelievable, it's unacceptable in our world. And and we're supposed to be the place that people come to feel safe and, and feel good about themselves. We, we have to do better than this. We have to. And I guess my goal would be for everyone to just rise above all of this bullshit and be better than that. And I I applaud the the moderator on that forum for actually standing behind his words. And he started kicking people out. I applaud him. And he caught a lot of flack, including some horrible texts to him that he shared via the the page so everyone could see it. Uh, I, I applaud him for standing up and actually putting his money where his mouth is. And we need, we need more people to do that. That's my opinion. Yeah. It just, it, that just shouldn't exist. You know, I'm a person that I, I kind of feel, I don't know. I've always been kind of s- very sensitive to energies, I guess, energy in the world. And right now there's, there's a lot, right? And a lot of people may be feeling really uncomfortable and I might encourage you to consider that maybe you should feel a little uncomfortable right now. That That's kind of the point of protest. We don't have to always take such clear sides all the time. Not all cops are bad. Not all protesters are are looting things. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle. There are bad cops. There are people looting. But we're seeing change happen, and that that's important. And I encourage you to just have conversations with people. That that's the hardest thing. You know, I consider myself much closer to the liberal side of the spectrum. And I grew up in a very conservative environment and I have many friends that are and and I I respect their views for the most part. But, you know, even on the liberal side, sometimes we get so hard on each other about saying things perfectly or you have to act in the right way or protest in the perfect way. And then it it scares people from even wanting to use their voice. We got to, you know, sometimes it's just, it gets exhausting. You know, for me, just touching upon the looting and what's going on out there. It's ha- it's happening everywhere. It's happening all over the country, as, ever, as we all know. And obviously, we as individuals 
are trying to listen, but it comes down to November when we can vote to get people in office, people who can, and we're not just talking about the head office of the country. We're not talking about just the president, whatever you believe on that. I'm talking about at at a smaller level, your local elections, your city, your county, your state, people that are there that can actually listen to what's going on to these communities that feel really suppressed and rightfully so. And if maybe if we had listened when they protested for Trayvon Martin or Philando Castile or I mean, there's many, many names. Well, this has Ma- happened for oh yeah, these decades just, upon decades upon. This decades. is more recent, more recent, yeah. obviously, uh, cases. Maybe if people had, maybe if people in charge had listened, maybe we wouldn't be at this tipping point right now. You know, maybe there would have been implemented change that actually made good, and maybe George Floyd would still be walking around this earth. Mm-hmm. And the the goal of this show is not to be political, and you know. Trust us, 99% of it will be focused on trombone and the amazing people we talk to. But, you know, this is an important time and art is always directly connected with life. And we can't ignore something like this and and getting to hear a voice like Ken. That being said, on to other things. You know, I'm picking up some hobbies that, you know, with all this free time that I didn't think I would ever do until I was 50. All of a sudden I'm gardening in my backyard. I don't. You know what? Where my gardener's at? It's kind of awesome, and I'm kind of getting it now. It's it's so zen. I'm literally creating life. It's peaceful. There's like a process to it. One of our former uh, retreaters, AJ, was telling me that his best advice was talk to the plants, and I, and I was like, okay, AJ. And then I googled it, and it's shown in some tests that it actually does help. Well, have you seen? There's actually a MythBusters episode on oh. this. You should watch it. Well, it's, I think it's that one specifically is about how you talk to your plants is does the tone that you take with your plants, does it Mm -hmm. actually make a difference? And they had a tent like uh, on top of their studio where they made the show. They had two greenhouses and one was blasting like intense metal music and they'd come in every day and scream (laughs) at the scream at the plants, but like, you're a stupid cucumber, you know? And then the other one was playing like light, harpy ludi sort of <laughs> vivaldi and they'd go in and stroke and say oh you're such a beautiful cucumber and if i remember correctly the one that actually had you know softer decibels is really what it came down to and more soothing environment or yielded more crop okay that makes sense yeah so there is there is some there are there are so sorry there are some studies that show that this might be yeah the article was interesting. It, it said female voices tend to get better results in the studies they had. And then some people theorize that it's simply when you're speaking to it, you're you're creating more carbon dioxide for the plant. So, oh, you know, either way, I think it's a nice thought. And, you know, my, my neighbors might think I'm crazy talking to my plants, but. Well, you're already you know. a trombone player. They already think you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Why is he just like. Yeah, why is he just playing random crap all the time? Yeah, I've been. I'm going to get into fishing. Actually, I, I got out my old fishing pole. I respooled it, and I'm going for the first time tomorrow. I'm taking my nephew. My he's six. Aww. He's turning seven. I'm I'm taking out fishing him fishing for his birthday because that's what his his parents, my sister and brother in law, they asked him, "What do you want to do for your birthday?" And he goes, "I want to go fishing with Uncle Nick." Oh, that's <laughs> I can't handle it. Yeah. That's too adorable. So we're going to go fishing. We were going to go fishing off of uh, a boat, but the weather looks a little iffy tomorrow. And yeah, so I think we're just going to go off the dock across the street from the from 
our cabin, my, my wife and my you cabin. You're going to get some, some perch? Uh, some perch? Hopefully some perch, some bluegill, some sunfish, maybe uh, maybe a crappie. You're just making up names now. Those aren't real fish. Maybe maybe a, a, a striped woozy huts it. Oh, ooh, those are very <laughs> rare. If you get uh, a woozy huts it, yeah. oh my gosh. It'll be all over all the fishing blogs. A spotted flapper dick. Okay, now, 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 <laughs> you have to like when you when you su- when you submit the podcast, you have to click if it's like uses, uh, it has like adult content or what, what explicit language. So, gotta be careful. You just violated. I'm, I'm that. using the I'm using the Latin genus of of every fish. That's all. <laughs> well, I'm very much looking forward to to getting up there soon for the online trombone retreat. Yeah, um, we are going to warm up in the morning and then go out in the boat. And then come back and do master class. Oh, and, that, that might not be clear to our listeners that actually S- Sebastian here and uh, our administrators, T- Taylor Fong, Steve Gellerson, Allison Fong, and Brian Santero are all going to drive out here for uh, some socially trip. distant yeah. trombone retreat. Yeah. Be very responsible. Well, this was, you know. Tough talk, but important talk, and appreciate everyone for listening with open mind. And thanks for listening. And as always, retreat yourself. Retreat yourself. <laughs> retreat yourself. <laughs>